Hey guys, welcome back to the Yurt Podcast. Today we got uh, Nathan McGuire. And you are a... Um, I'm a flight instructor. Um, I, w- I work down at uh, Utah Valley University. Um, I also work uh, part-time for a small flight school called Phoenix Flight Academy down in, at uh, Spanish Fork Airport. And is that like... Um, do each of the... Does, does that... Both those schools have like a landing strip and everything so they yeah so um utah valley university does all of its flight operations out of provo airport okay um and then the other flight schools uh down there at spanish fork airport um those two airports are are pretty much right next to each other they're they're about five miles apart um so the the commute is easy but uh but yeah so they they use the airport for for all their all their stuff (laughs) they don't own it but it's okay they just sort of like ran a little yeah, space, yeah, exactly. Or... They have hangar space there, and uh, um, how many planes do the schools have? So Utah Valley University, I, I couldn't give you an exact number, but uh, but twenty four, twenty five planes maybe. Um, and then the the other flight school I work at, we have uh, three right now. So okay, the the Spanish for uh, yeah, correct. Okay, yeah. and then um, so what size planes are you looking at for like for the university? Um. So you mean like like two seater, four seater? Yeah, um, like what's the okay. biggest type of plane? That yeah, you so um, so all our planes at UV are four seaters. Um, okay. And uh, so we have um, a, a whole fleet of single engine four seaters, uh, which we use for um, for private pilot training, um, okay. uh, instrument flying, uh, commercial pilot training, and then um, and then we do multi engine ratings as well. Um, in uh, Piper Seminoles, which are four-seater uh, twin-engine airplanes, um, so a, a little bit bigger just because there's two engines and more space. Yeah. But uh, but but they're all four-seaters. So, um, do you get a lot of like commercial pilots? Is this, is this a school where people would start to be a commercial pilot, or how does that work? So uh, Utah Valley University is um, in particular. It's a it's associated with the university. So students who go there um, can get an aviation degree, um, and their flight training is a part of that. Okay. So they go through and they get their their private pilot's license. They get their instrument rating. Um, they get their commercial pilot's license, and then they get their multi-engine rating. And along with uh, that, along with the other um, coursework that they do, both with general ed education and uh, and aviation core classes that they take in a classroom um if the when they get the credits for that and everything then they they end up getting a four-year degree out of it okay so do to be a pilot do you have to have like a four-year degree or a lot of the um the major airlines uh require it um which is where it would come in handy it's really um at Utah Valley University, the, the students that graduate from there take a lot of different paths. Some of them work as career flight instructors, um, which is what I'm doing right now. Um, some of them work as uh, corporate pilots flying flying basically rich people around in jets. Okay. Um, but a lot of them go to the airlines. And it's if you want to go to the airlines, um, there's a lot of pros to getting a degree um, specifically that encompasses that flight training. Um, for one, UVU is uh, what's what what's called a Part Forty One or sorry, Part One Forty One uh, flight school. Okay. Uh, meaning it, it falls under uh, slightly uh, different regulations as to how the school is run um, compared to compared to Part Sixty One flight schools. Um, so because of that, you go through and you do the courses and everything. And if you went through and got your all your licenses and stuff with uh, Utah Valley University mm-hmm. or any other Part 141 school, um, 
it actually reduces the amount of it, it makes you so that you're eligible for a restricted airline transport pilot's license so instead of having to uh wait until 1500 hours of flight okay. time to get a regular airline tra uh, transport pilot's license um you can get a restricted one at 1000 hours um so it just it kind of streamlines it makes everything happen a little bit quicker okay um there's also i, I mean any other perks to go into university, like uh, like internships and stuff like that, a, a lot of internship opportunities are open for um, for flight students who who go through that way. Um, so there's there's advantages that way. If, if do they do so? Do they go from flying the little four seater double engine planes to like a big commercial? <laughs> they do. Um, a lot of times they do. Yeah, and that's so what just kinda, as like a co pilot or something. Um, at first. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you always you you always get hired um, if it's if it's uh, if you're flying for an operation that requires two pilots, you're always going to get hired as a as a first officer as a co-pilot first. Okay. Um, but you do. I mean, there's there's a lot of students who do jump right from flying those four seaters to to being a co-pilot in a in a large 50, 70 seat regional jet. Yeah. Um, Have you flown one? I, not a regional jet, no. Okay. Um, I've flown, uh, I, I did an internship for Delta Airlines, and uh, while I was there, we got to um, access the um, the simulators that they have um, in-house that they use for training. Um, so those simulators are pretty realistic. They're full motion and everything. Um, the, the cockpit's all laid out exactly how the actual plane is. Um, so I've had experience flying those, but it's it's one thing to do that, and it's another thing to step into yeah. a, real, a real jet and fly it. No, I actually, um, back, I guess it was like, it was 07, right before the economy crashed. I was going, my buddy was a air traffic control flight simulator. This is back when you were, just had a high school diploma and you could be an air traffic control flight mm -hmm. simulator. I was working construction. We were both making $18 an hour, but I was getting the overtime. And he asked me if I wanted to come work with him. <laughs> and at the time, I was you know, arrogant little kid. And I was like, no, I'm going to do my man job over here doing the construction. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, long story short, I went through four different pipeline companies and, you know, a year and a half all went out of business. Yeah. And then by the time I tried to get back into the air traffic control flight simulator job, you needed like an associate's mm -hmm. degree to get into it. And now he, he's an actual air traffic control like a an air traffic controller and um you know he's making like one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year with the high school diploma so yeah i wish i, I would have done that yeah and I, I can't really speak for um i can't really speak for air traffic controllers uh like the specifics of their job or anything but uh -huh. it's it's uh it's a very mentally stressful job yeah um, so you, you would have been going from phys a lot of physical labor to a lot of mental labor i will say um that uh that while airlines a lot of airlines require you to have a four-year degree um, uh -huh. it it doesn't they they prefer it to be aviation related um yeah. in, in some cases but uh but but not but they don't require it to be necessarily um so i do know people who have gotten a four-year degree in um something else as like a as like a backup plan or a plan b if, and you have to be under 31 right that was the i think that's for air traffic controllers Oh, um, only air traffic controllers. Yeah, pilots in the civilian world. I know military is completely different, but uh, pilots in the civilian world, um, you can be. Uh, 
well, <laughs> you, you can be older than 31. You can't be older. Um, mandatory retirement age for uh, 121 airlines is 65. Yeah. Um, so, so if you're not older that older than that, then then go for it. Um, and I'm not sure what the specifics are about like age discrimination or anything like that. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, like you said, the air traffic control is a pretty stressful job. My buddy's dad actually. He was an air traffic controller, and he's always just kind of like a mess, you know. But my buddy that was doing it, I mean, he's nothing bothers him. He was just perfect for him. Yeah, it's just, I mean, and it's the same with being a pilot. It's um, it affects the stresses of the job affect different people differently. Um, so anyone who's who listens to this, who's looking to get into the into the industry one way or the other, uh-huh. um, just be prepared for that is what i'd say <laughs> yeah oh no you're so. flying a big old you know plane through the air with a bunch of people that's yeah yeah pretty stressful and it's honestly um there's kind of the industry's kind of and i'm talking way out of my depth here but um the industry's kind of at a at a uh it feels like it's at a turning point right now because as especially for um for airlines and corporate departments and any of the bigger jets as they get more and more automated uh-huh. um there starts to become that debate over oh can we like just fly these planes with one pilot in the cockpit yeah. can we pay them less because they're not having to do as much and it's there's there's kind of I think there's a slow redefining of what the role of a pilot is, and I I think it's starting to transition to where pilots are not only getting paid for what they physically do in the cockpit, um, they're getting paid for the the judgments that they have to make, knowing that they're responsible for however many people are in the back of the airplane. Doesn't that suck? It's like this automation, (laughs) you know, a majority of the country... Like an actual majority of the country are actual drivers, and once that automation kicks in, it's like, what do we do? You know, in a pilot, that's well, a good-paying job, yeah. and you're saying that like they're gonna start slowly paying them less and less. It's just like, well, I can't, I can't predict that, but, um, but you know, there's been, there's been people that have talked about something like that happening before, and I, and I've had uh, this inner dialogue with myself over and over again um, because of. As I've decided whether I want to continue pursuing this as a career or not, yeah. um, and as I talk to students of mine who are wanting to pursue this as a career but are just getting into it, um, it's, you know, I, <laughs> I don't want to be too optimistic, but I don't want to be too pessimistic, yeah. especially as far as that goes, because, um, you know, I, I don't want to tell them, oh, you're, like... This automation stuff like there's going to be two pilots in the cockpit forever you'll be totally fine I, I can't guarantee that um but i don't want to be like oh you should everybody should get out of the industry because it's all going to go towards um uber taxis and you know yeah. stuff like that yeah so. well there's i think for at least a while afterwards there's probably going to be a lot of the four-seater private like yeah people wanting to get to a more remote area I before think so. they automate that i think so too and it's um Something that one of my professors told me actually as I was going through uh, through the university and getting my degree um, is that it's going to come down to it's going to come down to that kind of cost benefit analysis of where um, these these companies that are manufacturing um, uh, planes and technology that allow the planes to be f- flown remotely or uh, using AI. Um, it's going to come down to them going to Congress and saying how many lives are going to have. Like, how many lives are you willing to sacrifice yeah. for this to be okay? Yeah. Um, and if just, they can get it to that point, then 
Who it knows? gets down <laughs> to profit at the end of the day. You know, it's mm-hmm. like I welded for Lincoln Safe for a while, and um, first off, they're paying twelve dollars an hour to weld. So I asked my foreman, you know, how much are you making? He's like thirteen dollars an hour. <laughs> it's like, man, you you don't even get paid. $13 an hour to grind welds in California. Yeah. It's not a livable wage. But right, right. they had uh, probably about 20 people on the cheap the cheap safe um, assembly line that I was doing. And then they had that exact same assembly line that was, uh, you know, mainly computer automated. Mm-hmm. And there were only three people on it. So it's like... Yeah, you know, it's, and it's it's all going there. It's yeah, and it, I mean, I think it'll be a slow process. I think uh, it'll be it, it'll be a high it'll be kind of like a hybrid, like you're talking about with you know, there's still humans there, but yeah. it's all kind of hybridized and everything. Um, and I think it'll stay that way for for quite a while. And as far as that relates to the context of the aviation industry, I, I think we'll be in kind of in the spot where um, where planes are are very um, very automated, very much the way one of my, um, one of my instructors put it was, um, that we're going to be paid to be, and we are paid to be basically systems managers Uh rather than necessarily pilots, um, for the majority of the time. So I, I think it'll stay that way probably for a while. And as, as automation, um, makes its way, the way it's going right now is it's making its way up through like smaller, like, like Uber taxis, like those mm-hmm. little drones that can carry one to two people, um, and, and kind of moving its way up from there. Um, so it just depends on how, uh, quickly that technology gets into place and how yeah. quickly that, uh, Congress in particular is okay with it. Because right now it's, um, you know, there's, there's, it, it's all regulatory, um, it's all regulatory as, as far as like when planes get certified, um, how many pilots need to be in the cockpit, um, yeah. or how many, even how many pilots need to be in the cockpit for a specific type of operation that they're doing, um, that an airline is doing. Um, so part of it is going to be that, uh, that political, uh, legislative process. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you probably definitely have a, uh, a warning cause they're more than likely going to put, you know, uh, semi trucks, automated before they have planes automated yeah well and trains too and that's the other thing is it's like you go on the front runner and there's still you know guys at the front conducting the train yeah um, so to speak so as long as as long as that's still in place we're kind of i kind of take a a deep breath you know (laughs) like okay as long as those guys are still there because that's that's on a fixed track it's not even they're not moving three-dimensionally well yeah and they don't even swap track or anything it's just so 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 we'll we'll see i guess but yeah i just i mean when it gets to that point i don't, I don't know what you do period you know? yeah well they always they always and i, I kind of i've kicked myself before for not um following through with this as much as i should have but they always tell us um uh getting into the industry that, that you know to have a backup plan have, have a have a way out um because not just for automation but um for example we're going through this coronavirus pandemic right now and um and the industry, you know, is really taking a hit. Like the the unions, and, and the nice thing is that airlines are super um, unionized. So mm-hmm. yeah. um, the, the unions help fight for um, as many people not to get laid off as possible. But because of that, people have had to take pay cuts. People have had to take um, reduced uh, mandatory hours that they get scheduled to fly. Um, and people who are in training got sent home. 
people who got conditional job offers were told that their conditional job offer was revoked. Um, so in, in situations like this, it's like, okay, how long is this going to last for? And what am I going to do to still put food on the table? You know what I mean? Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, no, the whole, it seems like the whole country's in this weird. And I mean, it's just like we go from this coronavirus into the technology and it's just, I mean, that we're, we're at 30% unemployment right now across the country. It's just, yeah. Um, most of it's gig work driving for uber that's the other thing too is is who knows how how gig work will um factor into that equation it's not uh the fa is kind of cracking down on gig work as far as aviation goes right now because a lot of it is uh is illegal charter operations yeah. <laughs> but um but you know there's a legitimate way to I'm, I'm sure there's got to be a legitimate way to factor in gig work into aviation employees, whether mm-hmm. it's pilots or anybody else. Um, and if that happens, um, I'm not sure how that would happen, but if that if that happens, then that's a whole new thing that's kind of thrown into the equation. But, um, but yeah, I mean, something like this happens, I mean, not to the scale usually, yeah. but something like this happens every... 10 years or so when we had the recession that was a hard time for everybody and uh, for all the pilots in the industry as well yeah um, no i i remember that because i had <laughs> lost my job and my you know my buddy's rubbing it in my face i should have came yeah. with him and i was like yeah nobody's gonna be able to go on airplanes anymore <laughs> though buddy you're gonna be right here with me yeah <laughs> honestly <laughs> being an happened. air traffic controller is probably more secure in times like these than being a pilot is because being an air traffic controller is all um it, you're you're more you're essentially a government employee most of the time. Yeah. So um so those jobs stay pretty secure. But uh but you had the recession and then um and I I wasn't around or, well, I was around but I don't remember this because I was like three years old, but after nine eleven yeah um was another tough time for the for pilots and so the how much how much security do you go through as a pilot? Um so I'm not sure what you mean by that. <laughs> well, like, I I honestly haven't been on a plane since prior to okay. 9-11. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, you know, the, the airport security's gone up a lot. Do you have to yeah. go through security every time you come to work? Um, that would, uh, so not at the flight school. Um, not at the right school. Now. Um, we, uh, we all have, uh, badges that allow us access on the, on the ramp at the airport and to be able to move around there and everything. Um, so to, to get those badges, um, we just, we take a class basically, um, okay. do a test and then go to the, um, city government office and, and pick up our badge. Um, so that's the extent kind of of the security that we do as flight instructors down there. Um, but as far as for airline pilots, um, there's, it, it's a slightly different process, but more or less the same. That, that would be something, if you get an airline pilot on here, that would be probably something to ask them, because I don't know too much about that. Okay. I, I just know, I, I still just mainly know from a passenger standpoint, um, taking off the shoes and, you know, putting everything through the conveyor x-ray and walking through whatever and how how every passenger's been doing it, so. <laughs> yeah, no, I we we got to get on a plane. Like I said, I haven't been on a plane since before 9-11, and then my wife has never flown on a plane, man. so. You got to get her inundated, man. <laughs> yeah, got to get her on that. It's I, I heard it's a totally, I mean, when I went, you still plugged your little, uh, they were like tubes, and you plugged your headphones in, and it was okay. like, actual air that they blew through the headphones it wasn't like a wired thing man it's pretty cool (laughs) but uh yeah no um do they do a pretty 
pretty big background check to get in to be a pilot, right? I mean, credit check. I would, I would assume so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, they did. Uh, they did one when I went uh, to intern for Delta because we went and all got um, uh, what are called CIDA badges or. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember what the acronym stands for. It's like Secure Identification Display something. Uh, basically, it allowed us to, because the internship was over at uh, Delta's corporate headquarters in Atlanta. Um, so it was, it was right there at Atlanta's airport. Um, so those badges allowed us to to go around um, at the airport there. Yeah. Um, even the you know the parts that, that to your everyday passenger um, isn't allowed to, to go in. Like, we, we got access to the ramp. Um we got driving privileges to where we could drive around the ramp because we needed to uh, get from sometimes from like corporate pilot office to, um, to, uh, cor- uh, to, sorry, to, from pilot office to pilot office, um, on the field there. So, um, so yeah, so it's, so you, you undergo a pretty big background check. Yeah. Um, one of the things that they, they look at more intensely than a lot of other jobs, um, is your driving record. Um, same, I assume is for like truckers, um, just cause if you have a lot of moving violations or things like that, then how does that translate to your flying? You know yeah. what I mean? So yeah, if you're getting caught speeding every week, it's like, okay, are you going to follow the rules flying an airplane or, you, yeah. you know, so they, they get take a little a, quicker. Yeah. They take a closer look at stuff like that. But, um, but it, it's, it, I, I guess it'd be intense if you have a criminal record, but if, if you don't, then it's nothing yeah. to worry about. So. The uh, have you ever thought about doing helicopter? I have, piloting? yeah. Um, the thing about uh, helicopters, though, is the the training is actually um, more expensive than a, a fixed yeah. wing airplane, um, and the job opportunities are more niche, I guess you would say. Well, that's what I was so. thinking. Is like you know you talk about automated flights, but mm-hmm. I mean they've they've got helicopter loggers, they've got helicopter rescue teams, they've got all these things that. I don't yeah. think automation's going to get there right away for... It might not, no, because the type of flying is different. Um, yeah. For, for fixed-wing airplanes and for airlines in particular, um, you're, you're flying a, you know, from airport to airport, there's there's a flight plan that you're flying, yeah. and you're, it's usually more or less the same routes and altitudes more, more, you know, a lot of the time. If you're doing helicopters uh, for, like, uh, rescue ops or stuff like that, especially if it's something where you're you're flying around and you have to go into like, like around here, people go to fly helicopters in mountain canyons to pick up like stranded hikers or stuff like that. Get through trees and stuff. Yeah. I got to imagine that would be harder to automate because it's not a, it's not a fixed flight path necessarily. And you're not doing that consistently. So, yeah, I mean, you just, I would imagine people could make a better decision for that. Might take a risk that an automated service wasn't allowed to. And if it's if it's something where um, the safety is critical for the success of well, I shouldn't. Every time you're flying, safety is critical for the success of the operation, right? But if it's something like where if you were to have a helicopter crash, then you know, <laughs> people outside of everyone in a helicopter would would die and you just you know go through this thing, then I think that would be a harder risk for them to to swallow yeah a little bit so do they put anything like i have a a drone i've got the maverick Mm -hmm. and you know it's got the function where if like i'm about to crash into a tree it stops okay do they put that stuff into (laughs) planes and helicopters Um, and stuff 
So that's kind of where it's going right now. That's kind of the big challenges. Um, it would be things like that. Um, the way that uh, the autopilot works on 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 most fixed wing aircraft right now is you have mechanical servos, right? That um, that are the ones actually moving the controls, um, and then you have a flight director, which is a computer that um, basically takes all of the inputs from what the plane is, is telling you, what altitude you're at, your rate of descent or your rate of climb, um, what heading you're on, how much you're turning, things like that. And it, and it, you know, it just it works like a computer. It, it uh, does, the, does the math and based on what you put into it, does the calculations in the math to um, move the plane as such to get to where you want to go. But that's mostly still restricted to just being able to hold an altitude, um, climb up to an altitude, descend, um, fly a specific heading. Um, airplanes that have auto throttles uh, can can hold a specific speed by um, by actually adjusting the throttles in the airplane. Um, but it's not necessarily at a point yet where um, <laughs> it could it could just make the plane uh, stop if you were to purposely yeah. fly it into a mountain. Um, it plane's I, a little different. Though, yeah, I yeah. I, I mean, I don't know how it'll be with helicopters, but. Uh, um, there, there are, I mean, I mean, we could talk for like an hour on the, all the systems that are in there in, in place to help with pilot awareness, but that's the thing. They're all in there to help with pilot awareness. And a lot of it still takes the pilot seeing, for example, uh, terrain alert systems, mm -hmm. um, there, those are installed on a lot of uh, airliners and also now increasingly a lot of like small single engine planes like we're flying. Um, those are installed to recognize, okay, there's terrain up here and it gives us a warning that says there's terrain up there. Don't, you know, keep, don't keep flying that way, pull up, do something different. But it's, it's still kind of at the point where it's up to us to look at that warning and say, oh crap, we got to do something different and actually do yeah. something different. Um, but that's, it's slowly becoming, slowly the technology is getting there to where, um, to where more and more um, airplanes can automatically adjust the airplane's flight path to um, avoid terrain. Um, we're already at the point where airline, airliners can um, adjust, can automatically adjust flight path to avoid other um, airplanes in mm -hmm. the air, um, so it's it's just a matter of how many uh, you know different inventions like that keep going forward, and, and how much airplanes they how many airplanes they get put on. Well, and they come so, quick. Yeah, all that stuff comes pretty quick. Yep. the <laughs> the The biggest new thing is um, is Garmin's uh, Autoland system, which um, Autoland is something that's been on airliners for. A, a decent amount of time now mm -hmm. um but that's it's starting to come to smaller um and more general aviation type airplanes now um to where the um the airplane can uh land itself in case of an emergency it's basically um on smaller airplanes it's used for emergency race emergencies right now um but it's have you ever you used know. one? <laughs> um, I haven't done Autoland, no, um, because the the way that works on airliners is a little bit different than some of the smaller planes that it's getting used on. Mm -hmm. um, the way it works on airliners is it's usually conjoined with um, what's called an instrument landing system, um, which is already a way to it uses radio waves basically to um, help guide the plane down to the runway, um, and if the 
if the if that system is reliable enough and the airplane's equipment is reliable enough and the pilots are trained and certified for it <laughs> um then then auto land is an is an option at some airports but it's it's not every airport it's not every airplane and it's not every flight crew so yeah. that's kind of that's kind of the thing right now so. what that's got to be the hardest part like when you first start flying a plane, landing has got to be the hardest part, huh? I would I would say so. I think it's the hardest. I think it's generally one of the hardest things for new pilots, just because it's it's the one thing that's like <clears throat> completely different from anything you've probably ever done before. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Where um, a lot of times, at least at UVU, we spend the first couple lessons um, doing like just your typical basic flight maneuvers, like um, like turning the airplane, climbing, descending holding straight and level flight. Um, and that's all pretty it, relatively easier to grasp yeah. um, because it's, it's kind of, it's, it still seems kind of familiar to where, Oh, if I move the, the control stick to the right, the plane's going to bank to the right and I'm going to go that way. Um, but landing, there's just so many different things to, to think about. And the fact that it all happens um, pretty, pretty quickly um i think is what gets a lot of people but. so what was your first time landing a plane like <laughs> well i don't remember my first time landing a plane with an instructor but i do remember my first time landing a plane by myself um when you do private pilot training there's um there's a time when you do your first solo flight mm-hmm. which you're still you haven't gotten your private pilot's license yet you're still a student pilot um but you're in in endorsed or authorized by your instructor um to go fly by yourself for training purposes um, basically as a like uh, like a study by yourself kind of thing, um, but flying. Um, and that usually happens 10 to 20 hours in. It just depends on the student. Okay. Um, and when I went and did my first solo flight, typically, traditionally for a solo flight, you go up and you do um, three traffic pattern laps, which are, um, you're basically just flying a rectangle um, okay. around the airport. I just taken off, flying a rectangle, landing, taking off, flying a rectangle, landing. You do that three times, um, and then you, you land and you taxi in. Um, and my first landing that I went in and did on my solo flight, I, I came in um, without pulling back on the stick enough, and I, I kind of hit all three wheels first, bounced into the air, <laughs> and then just kind of kept bouncing <laughs> in, into the air. Um, so that remains probably my worst landing um and i i can't really explain why that was but uh <laughs> but it was it was interesting were you kind of freaking out <laughs> a little bit yeah. yeah yeah it's 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 uh it's different when you have to correct for stuff like that by yourself as opposed to when you have an instructor because usually if you come in and land and you bounce a couple times usually your instructor's gonna say okay i'm gonna take the controls and we're gonna <laughs> yeah. we're gonna fix this but um but it, it, I mean, it ended up being all right, and um, just kept learning from there. So, so what's the worst you've seen one of your students do? <laughs> um, Anybody crashed one? No, I have, thankfully I haven't had a student crash yet. Um, that's, uh, I, I mean, something you never want to have happen, right? Both yeah. for the student and also because when this the student is flying. Um, by themselves, uh, when they're still student pilot, when they're doing those solo flights, um, they're flying on, on your ticket, um, okay. so to speak. So they're, so if they, if they, if they break a regulation or they crash, um, then they're going to, depending on what it is, they might look at the student a little bit, but they're also going to look at you and say, okay, how have you been training them? What have you guys been going through? Um, 
you know, the, the scrutiny is going to be on you there because you're the one that said, okay, he's good to go fly by himself. And then obviously one way or another, he wasn't, if it's a situation like that. So thankfully we've never had that happen, but, um, but, uh, yeah, just knock on wood, <laughs> you know, make sure that still doesn't happen. Uh, that was plastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> um, have you, do you get anybody who's just like really crazy with it? They're just super aggressive. Um, get up there and start doing flips and stuff. Uh, not flips, thankfully. Um, <laughs> the, the planes that we fly are kind of kind of hard to flip unless you really do something wrong. Um, but uh, but I, I mean, I've had and and any instructor will tell you this. There's there's just a super wide range of student ability from students who come in the first day and they're like they're just rocking it out like the, the whole way through um and then you know students who who take a little bit longer but um but there are students who tend to freak out more than others about certain yeah. things um there are students who tend to be cockier than others about certain things um those are the fun ones because you get to knock them down a peg but <laughs> <laughs> um there are students who are more apprehensive about certain things than than others so it it just it just depends, and and part of being an instructor too, and and really probably the hardest part of being an instructor is adjusting your teaching style on the fly to those um, to those different learning styles, um, is what I would say. So, have have you ever thought about opening your own private, like private, either? That would be that would be nice. Yeah. Um, Do like you either, have a plane? Uh, I don't. No, I don't okay. own one. Um, it's uh, it takes a lot of. Um, it takes a lot of money to, yeah. to own one. Um, it takes a lot of money to run a, a flight school or, or especially an airline as well. I would imagine um, the insurance of, would be crazy. Yeah, well, insurance, <laughs> um, regulatory requirements, there's a lot of laws and paperwork that you have to follow. Um, it's something that, you know, down the road, if I decided I wanted to put a lot of uh, a lot of investment of time and money into it, then then maybe I think it'd be it'd be fun enough to do, um, but I'm just not at the point right now where I can put in that time and money that would be needed to yeah. <laughs> to run it properly. That'd be cool to do some <laughs> like private, like where you took people down to like Mexico on a fishing it, yeah. trip or something. Yeah, you know? I would I would love to do something like that. Um, to do charter flights like that, just a lot of paperwork, a lot of regulatory yeah. stuff you have to follow for that. Um, a lot of insurance requirements as well. Um, but I've, um, just from ideas in my head, I've, I've thought like, Oh, it'd be cool to do like a, like a air taxi service, like Salt Lake to, to Wendover or something like that. Or, you know, to, to be involved with something like that. You'd probably I'd, get a lot of business. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the thing about those is it's, uh, the economics of airlines man it's it's um it's pretty wild because you've got a it's one of those things where the smaller you are the harder it is to turn a profit usually no. um just because the the cost there the cost of running an airline whether it's you have one four seat plane or or 200 <laughs> 737s um the the costs are relatively high yeah. um so it's like if you, the less people you can fit on a plane, the more you've got to charge them to break even. But if you charge them more, then it you know it turns people off from routes like that. Like if I was gonna do a Salt Lake to Wendover flight in a in a ten seater airplane, and because of because of how small the airplane is, I'd have to charge everybody you know seventy dollars for a one way ticket to make a profit. Then it, it would be hard to get people, I would think, 
to do something like that to where they'd say, oh, yeah, I'll pay $70. I won't just drive and, you know, maybe have to fill up it with gas for like $30. That's Well, and then yeah. you got to rely on that many people coming <laughs> right. every week. Yeah, and... yeah. And that's, um, airlines rely, just like you said, they rely on their planes being being full or near full um, a lot of the time. That's why uh, this pandemic has really um, left them hurting. I mean, when you hear about um, airlines taking, you know, billions of dollars in losses every quarter, um, it's because when those planes aren't flying near full capacity, they're not, they're not turning a profit. So it's, 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 it's difficult. Um, It's, it's probably from an economics and, and business side of things, I would say it's, it's, running an airline might be one of the more difficult things to run out there. So. Yeah. You'd have to rent like the runway and stuff like that too, right? Um not n- not really. No. No. Um a lot of uh, is that's public or is Yeah, yeah. So uh, I mean almost all the airports that um that pe- people that airlines and corporate even corporate planes and stuff like that generally fly into are public use. Okay. Um so a lot of any anything like that, like Salt Lake International, Provo, it's all generally public use. It's paid paid for by the by the city, um, and sometimes by the state or by the even by the federal government a little bit as well. It's kind of uh, there, there's a split there, um, okay. one way or the other, depending on how big it is. But um, so that that usually takes care of the. Um, it usually takes care of the the runways and the terminals and stuff like that, and then in exchange, a lot of times at larger airports like Salt Lake, um, then uh, airlines get charged a, a landing fee, okay, um, a landing fee that way. So that so that is part of the cost, I guess, is what I'd say. But they're not, they don't have to pay for the runway specifically. They don't have to be like, oh, we want to use this runway, and so we'll you know pay this much. It's more like, okay, you do this many flights out of this airport. The landing fee is this every time, so. And put it on the put it as part of the finances so yeah there's got to be a way to like if you did skydiving or i mean you don't see them you see them at the beach like if you go to venice beach you'll see those people carrying the flags advertising flags yeah yeah i mean there's got to be definitely got to be ways to start out small yeah so there's um yeah so that's one of the ways to do it for sure um and what's nice about jobs like that is um you can typically find low time pilots that you can hire for stuff like that mm-hmm. um and you don't have to pay them as much so yeah. so it, it kind of it, i mean it it works that way a little bit but um but there are small small little outfits like that that do great um but it it's it's hard work. <laughs> what is the, do they, they got to give you some sort of training on if the plane's going down. What is that training? Like? They do. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, starting with private pilot training, um, emergency operations and scenarios are something that, um, we practice just as much as anything in the okay. plane, um, both, both on the ground talking about it and in the plane, um, actually simulating stuff like that as well. Um, one of the more common ones we do is, uh, like an engine, Sorry, like a engine failure scenario. Um, uh-huh. We don't actually fail the engine purposefully in flight, um, but we we pull the throttle back to the idle position, pull the throttle all the way back, um, and uh, we we simulate that as though your oh your engine's just died. What are you gonna do? Um, what airspeed are you gonna maintain? Where are you gonna land? Um, what checklists are you gonna do? Uh, how would you declare an emergency? And we we go through and we practice that over and over again. Um, uh, at all at all stages of training really so okay and then if you're in a single engine airplane what do you, are you just 
if that engine's gone, you're just relying yeah, on it's, gliding. Yeah, you're you're gliding somewhere, and depending <laughs> on where you are, it's um, if you're lucky enough to be close to an airport, then sometimes you can make it to an airport. Um, but if you're not, then if you're in a rural area, then that's a lot of times it's like uh, you you pick the nicest looking field um, <laughs> and and touch it down there. Um, if you're in a more urban area, then that might consist of landing on the freeway, maybe, or uh, or like a golf course, or um, or like a beach if it's like Los Angeles or something. <laughs> so what? Like, let's say you had to land on the freeway. You just like people are on the phone with highway patrol, and highway patrol's got to stop some traffic. Or it could be that way, yeah. So um, part of part of what we practice in emergencies, and part of what you would actually do if you, assuming you have time in an emergency, is you would declare an emergency to air traffic control. Okay. Um, and you'd say, um, you'd say, you know, mayday, mayday, mayday. I'm sure you've heard that before. Um, uh, whatever your call sign is, we have an engine failure. We're going to land here. And then if you need any kind of assistance, then you can request that. And, um, and they would be kind of the ones to take care of that for you. So if you, you're saying, Oh, we're going to land on, on interstate 15, uh, by Salt Lake city. Um, then they could get on the phone with, uh, with highway patrol and kind of coordinate, um, getting like, um, emergency vehicles out there and stuff like that. So, okay. Yeah, no, that would probably be a horrible situation. Yeah, yeah. How much time would, would you actually have? I mean, can you glide for a while? Um, it just depends on what altitude you're at, right? Because it's, yeah. it's just you're sacrificing altitude for however long you're going. Um, so if you're – the planes that we fly at UVU, um, they typically – uh, when, we, when we practice with the throttle to idle, um, they typically descend about – about a thousand feet a minute, maybe. So if you're three thousand feet above the ground, that gives you about three minutes. Oh. So three minutes yeah. is not a lot of time <laughs> to go through air traffic goes, control to highway patrol. Yeah, yeah, you'd be you'd be surprised. Though. I mean, that's part of the reason why we practice a lot of this stuff is um, you'd be surprised how, with enough practice, how efficiently you could get through um, uh-huh. get through whatever you need to do, um, and then however they respond is is you know however they respond but um if you had if you have to land on a freeway or something like that i I don't know that you would ever have enough time for for them to completely clear off the freeway for you just hope the car uh, saw you huh yeah i just hope the car (laughs) see you at that point i mean i do want to stress that um that engine failures are um are super rare even in uh single engine airplanes it's it's something that where maintenance is maintenance in all types of airplanes really has come a long way since the early days aviation so it's it's something that like for example, I've I've been flying for four or five years, and I have about uh, almost 900 hours of flight time, um, and I've I've never uh, had an engine failure. So it's it's something that's rare, but that we still practice for because as soon as you think that it's not going to happen to you, is when it happens to you. So. Yeah, they must build uh, plane engines a lot better than they build new car engines, man. Because like, yeah. I mean, I got uh, that that car we got in the garage there. That thing's got an aluminum block. And mm-hmm. it's got just this, um, just the, it's a sensor that checks your engine coolant. And well, the thing's they... plastic in an mm-hmm. aluminum block. I got to rip half the top of the engine off to get to it every year. Things constantly going out. The planes we fly are air cooled, so maybe that. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just <laughs> no, I, I like um, all cars nowadays. Yeah, they got yeah. crazy sensors. Well, and, right, and that's actually, I mean. Um, a lot of airplane engines are still manufactured pretty um, basic, pretty old school, pretty rudimentary. Yeah, that's how um, they so should that be doing cars. So that kind of helps in their 
that kind of helps with their reliability a little bit. And they also have to be, airplanes in general have to be inspected a lot, and especially the engine. Yeah. Um, if you're doing like a flight school or any other situation where you're flying a plane for hire, um, it has to be inspected every um, hundred hours of, uh, of uh, what's called tack time, um, mm-hmm. which um, is, is more or less when the engine's running, basically. So a hundred, every hundred hours of that, if it's for hire, it needs to be inspected. Um, and then every year, um, the airplane in general, including the, the airframe and the the engine needs to be inspected so that's part of keeping it running well as well yeah no it's like (laughs) with the cars man i'm telling you from 1988 to like 1994 right when they perfected fuel injection it was like the best time for cars yeah Yeah, well the i mean the planes we fly um are uh uh fuel injected um air-cooled four-stroke um you know it's all i mean spark plugs uh magnetos are part of the starter system so you know it's it's all it's all more still a little more old school than <laughs> have you ever driven like an old carbureted i ha- uh not a car no um, or no like a plane oh, carbureted like a, plane yeah i have yeah i've flown a i've flown a carbureted plane before um that's that's pretty interesting too <laughs> um you have to worry about the thing you have to worry about with those is carb ice um when it's whenever it's humid and a certain temperature range but um yeah i'd imagine like the the oxygen levels are changing quite dramatically right when you're going up and down they do yeah but it's it's usually i mean it's it's consistent it's not unpredictable necessarily um but we have in 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 all airplanes uh really there's uh what's um uh, called a or in all small airplanes anyways there's what's called a mixture control um, and that mixture control um, allows us to adjust the ratio of fuel to air that's entering the engine okay so as we get up in altitude and as the the density of the air decreases and the air starts to get thinner um, then we we what's called lean the mixture we pull the mixture lever back um, to decrease the amount of fuel that's entering the engine to make sure the the, the ratio is uh, still where it needs to be basically it's not there's not too much fuel for the amount of air is not too little fuel for the amount of air because otherwise yeah you can no run your engine that way <laughs> i mean and people had to figure that out yeah. you know what i'm saying i couldn't yeah, imagine I'm, being an old pilot and that whole, just... the whole story i mean it's I, i'm kind of a history buff too so it's it's like the whole story of um and you know people you know know of the the Wright brothers and everything, but the Wright brothers um, were really just one major step in in a long process of yeah. getting airplanes to where they needed to be for them to be safe. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, no, it's just like even World War Two and stuff. You see some of those guys in there. It's yeah. Well, World War Two. Uh, there, there are a lot of technological marvel, marvels that happened around uh, World War II as far as uh, as far as airplane design goes and everything. That's when we started to get uh, the first uh, pressurized airplanes. Um, jets came about ten years later uh, yeah. after the end of World War II. So, have you ever flown a jet? uh not a jet no <laughs> yeah is it just something you want to do or yeah yeah um so my my goal ultimately is to go and, and fly for an airline but um uh, whenever it happens we'll see i uh, you know I'm not impatient to go uh, do that by any means but um but I, I think flying a jet of any kind would be would be really cool so you know the the blackbird right the yes, was it yeah, sr71 SR yeah yep. sr71 blackbird lancaster where I'm from, that's actually where they're housed. That's where they were created oh, and no everything. Way. And um, 
You drive down this street, it's either Avenue M or Avenue N on like mm. 30th Street East, but they're just sitting out there on the road for people to see. And the security guards, it was in the newspaper, but it's probably, probably like 12 years ago or something. The security guards were out there and um, they were doing fast draws on each other. Okay. And one of the security guards shot the blackbird. It was in the newspaper and everything, but uh, yeah, yeah, no, they're crazy looking planes. There's nothing faster than that, still, right? Well, um, I don't believe so. Uh, if there is, I'll have to go look that up now. But I, 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 I think that is still the fastest um, that we've we've gotten to with uh, with an airplane of that type. So, if you get, um, if you happen to get somebody from from the uh, um, from the military or someone who, who flies those type of jets on the on the podcast, um, you should really go into depth with them about in depth with them about uh, about supersonic um, transport and and how those uh, kind of planes are manufactured. Too, yeah. Because the way that they have to design the the airfoils, uh, everything from the wings to the to the fuselage um, to the engines even um, is. It's just a whole nother step up in engineering. It's it's wild. So well, man, even if you look at a regular airplane, you kind of see those wings vibrating. Mm-hmm. It's just like, how are those things not ripping off of there? Like, well, what are they? A lot of spars. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, spars, and uh, it's all. Um, well, at, at least the planes we fly are are uh, semi monocoque construction. So, um, so you have. Uh, I mean, you have, it's all reinforced, um, reinforced, uh, in our case, it's composite materials, uh, glass fiber and carbon fiber reinforced plastic that are, uh, holding the wings up and then spars in between to, to keep them together. But, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, I've, we have, uh, we, pretty crazy. we have load factor limits, um, as far as how much stress that we can put on the airplane without it reasonably, um, breaking apart, but, um, but in normal flight operations, you don't really get near those uh, limits necessarily. So, have you ever seen anything crazy when you're up in the <laughs> up in the air? Um, nothing too crazy, but I've been uh, I've been flashed with a laser before. Um, Ooh! So um, so that was I was a little I was with a student too. I was a little peeved about that, but um, just. Uh, just a lot, just stuff like that. How um, high were you up when you got hit with the laser? Uh, we were only about a thousand feet off the ground at the time because um, we were doing. Um, actually, we had just done in, like an engine failure scenario, mm-hmm. um, and we we took it down to about a thousand feet, and then we were uh, starting to climb up from there, um, and then uh, was out over in the fields by like Santa Quinn in that area, um, and we we got hit by a green laser went in the cockpit, and uh, and. So what did that look like? Was it was it bigger than like if I it, shined it yeah, on the wall re- right now? Well, yeah, it got reflected a little bit. Um, okay, so, but otherwise it was, it was it was like if you were to, if it, it's like if I were to look at it from here, looking at it going to the wall. Um, it didn't it didn't really hit us directly. Um, more just kind of hit the canopy of the airplane, and then from there, kind of reflected sort of a little went bit. Everywhere. But, yeah, a little bit, but. Um, but you know, nothing too crazy happened from that. Um, I've been relatively close to other airplanes before. Um, where it's <laughs> it's funny how um, 
how traffic avoidance works in aviation because when you're on, I mean, cars, right? We every road pretty much has um, has lanes and you know mm-hmm. dividers, and you're supposed to stay in your lane or use a turn signal if you merge. Um, with airplanes, it's like you're flying around three dimensionally, and other people are flying around three dimensionally, and you just gotta look out for each other basically so <laughs> um so i've been close pretty close to other airplanes before just from the nature of oh we're doing maneuvers and they're doing maneuvers and we just happen to you know get pretty close to each other um so there's there's right of way right of way rules that we have to follow that are similar to cars basically at four-way stops okay. um people on the right have right of way anybody that's lower than us if we're on an approach somewhere has a has right of way um if we're converging with another airplane we're supposed to each go to the right um rules like that and then uh and then traffic avoidance uh systems like in our avionics um that's something that actually has uh, come quite a long way from where it used to be to where um, in certain types of airspace, um, ADS, what's called ADSB is uh, is now mandated. Um, and, and basically ADSB, um, there's an out component to it and an in component to it. Um, the out component um, allows your position and your altitude and everywhere you're going basically to be broadcasted, just <clears throat> broadcasted out into the into the world basically um, for ATC to see. Um, and, uh, and anybody who has the in component of ADSB to see as well. So if you have the, if you have ADSB out and in, um, then you can not only broadcast your position to other airplanes, but you can see on it, like inside the cockpit, uh, on your, uh, on your map display, um, where other airplanes are. Um, it's just so more stuff to look at. Though. It's, it's more stuff to look at, but it, it does help. Um, yeah. I've, I've flown planes both with that and without that. And I, I've almost gotten spoiled with that because if there's, if I'm looking for an airplane around us, I can just look at the screen and, and go, oh, this guy is a thousand feet above us at our 11 o'clock. And then now I know exactly where to look for him um, versus when I don't have that, then I've, then I've really got to like <laughs> keep, uh, constantly be parsing my, uh, my eye movements around to see, oh, is there somebody here? Is there somebody here? Is there somebody here? Is there somebody here? <laughs> so so it's it it does make things easier yeah the uh how did you get into it were did you take the school that you're now teaching in or were you in the military yeah so um so i did graduate from from utah valley university okay um i i got a four-year i got a bachelor's degree in aviation was that Um, something you thought about doing in high school or what in high school yeah so um it was about it was probably about freshman year of high school that i said okay i want to do this for a career i always wanted to fly um but as it was about high school that I was like, okay, I want to actually do this for a career. Um, and I've been in the flying since the very beginning, really, because uh, my dad was a, a pilot okay. um, in the Marine Corps. Um, so I have fond memories of when I was younger, um, watching him fly around. And then, uh, and then as I got older and we started to move around a lot because he was in the military, we had to often take plane trips to move around and just the experience from those, I was like, okay, this, this is pretty sweet. Like I want to, you know, get, get up in the air and do this myself. Um, so it was just kind of a long process that way. So where are you originally from? Um, so I call Boise my hometown. Um, the reason is because I spent all four years of high school there. Yeah. Um, but we really just, moved around all over the place when I was a kid. I, I think that was born in California, like I said. Um, and then we moved to, uh, North Carolina, um, 
we, we lived in Idaho when I was super young as well. And then we moved to Louisiana, Wisconsin, Hawaii, back to Louisiana, back to Idaho for high school. And now I'm here. So what's your favorite place? If you could, I mean, <laughs> I get asked that a lot. Um, and the answer that I feel like everybody's always expecting me to say when they ask me that is Hawaii, um, which Hawaii, <laughs> I heard that's expensive. Hawaii was, it, it was expensive, but that was like 11 years old at the time. So I, I, yeah. I didn't really comprehend that. Um, Hawaii was great. Um, Louisiana was great too. Um, I, I love Cajun food. So, yeah. um, so if I could just go down there and just eat everything, that'd be great. Um, seafood's I, way cheaper too. Seafood. It is. Yeah. And yeah, a lot coast. of, uh, a lot of, a lot of craw, crawfish and, yeah. uh, you know, whole crawfish boils and all that down there. Um, I, I liked, uh, I'm from Boise as well. Um, uh, I like Boise as well. Yeah. So there's, there's pros and cons everywhere. <laughs> Do you have like, cause my buddy, like I said, he's the air traffic controller, but he's staying in the desert. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he can go anywhere in the country, basically, you yeah. know, and he's going to stay in the stay yeah. in the desert um, there. Well, it's interesting that, uh, as long as I think I know where you're going with this, but um, it, it's interesting that you asked that because I, I had a choice of going to college between Utah Valley University, um, University of North Dakota, which has a fantastic um, aviation program, both for pilots and air traffic controllers, actually, at, uh, at University of North Dakota, um, and uh, Kansas State University, which also has a great aviation program. And I ultimately decided on Utah Valley University more than anything, just because I wanted to stay around the mountains. Yeah. Um, that's, that's Oh, kinda... it is weird when you go somewhere without <laughs> yeah. mountains. Yeah, well, and North Dakota, too. I mean, it was, it was like when I, I went and did a, a tour of the campus there, um, my senior year of high school, and it was like negative five and foggy oh, all yeah. the time. And I was like, I don't want to spend four years here, <laughs> but, um, more power to you if you do. But I was like, no, nah, the mountains are my, the mountains are my landscape. This whole kind of area, Colorado, Utah, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. Um, that's it's just what I like being around. And I like to snowboard and mountain bike and all that stuff as yeah. well. So I wanted oh, this to, is a place for it. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to keep doing that. So, yeah, no, my, uh, my buddies from the desert too. I mean, it's cold here for us, mm-hmm. but he went to North Dakota when he was oil Full fracking <laughs> or fracking for natural gas. Yeah. And he said that his eyes actually froze open. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Couldn't even imagine that. My, uh, I, I took my girlfriend at the time, she's not my wife, but I, I, I took my girlfriend at the time to visit um, my, my dad's side of the family for Christmas. Um, this is back in 2017 um, in uh, <clears throat> Chicago. And um, we, we go to Chicago and beforehand, um, before and I was telling her about Chicago and she was like, Oh, that'd be cool if we like, you know, ended up there someday or something. And we, we, <laughs> we went there for Christmas and the whole time is one of those Arctic air spells that was coming through or something. So the whole time, it, I don't think it ever got about, I don't think it ever got positive digits Fahrenheit. While <laughs> she we were didn't want to go back. So yeah. So yeah, she was like, I never want to go to Chicago again. Every time I suggest, uh, you know, something like that to her, um, she's like, Oh, but it's so cold there. And I'm like, that was, that was like a really specific instance it's not always that cold i swear summer's yeah, actually really but it nice. does get that yeah cold. yeah <laughs> but the summers are nice so yeah i guess i yeah. i spent the last before we moved back we were in florida mm-hmm. and um yeah i mean that's just a totally different beast over there people were yeah, yeah. a little different the humidity is crazy bugs yep. everywhere like i used to think we would get attacked by mosquitoes uh 
you know, out there in Lancaster, you'd have like three of them bite you. Mm-hmm. In Florida, there's like you need bug spray down there. The, they don't. They just eat that bug spray, man. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Um, what's the fastest fastest you've ever been in a plane? Um, when I did my multi-engine training, um, we got a really good tailwind. Uh, one of these times I was doing a cross country, and um, uh, we got up to a little over 200 knots. Uh, so about. Uh, 220 230 miles an hour maybe okay and so. knots how how does that work is uh, that the same so, knots for planes as is it is is for boats it is yeah so um yeah so nautical miles per hour um is uh what we generally use for stuff like that for um for airplanes um just because it makes more sense too <laughs> i just like i don't i don't get i i've heard it explained before but mm-hmm. it's it's like a a straight line or it's like if you were to yeah so if it's it's like if you were to account for the the uh um the curvature of the earth mm-hmm. into that um that's that's kind of the deal there so so one one mile is like 1.3 nautical miles or something like that i think is the conversion okay so, or sorry one one nautical mile is one point three miles. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's the conversion. So. Yeah. That. Uh, so you went cross country though. Uh yeah. So um it just I re- recognize that after I said it, but uh, but cross country in the aviation sense is a little bit different than uh, what people think of when they hear of cross country. Um, it, we didn't actually go literally across the country. Um, a, a cross country flight and uh, flight training just refers to. Um, any flight that's over uh, 50 nautical miles. Okay. So I could go from, I could fly from here to uh, Wendover or Wendover and it okay. would be a, a cross country. Um, so, yeah. So I, I tell people that all the time and they're like, you flew across the country. And I'm like, nah, we didn't go to like New York or anything, but, um, but that's just how to, how we refer to kind of longer flights like that, uh, that go to a specific airport. So. Okay. Um, do you got anything big in the mix to go like, I mean, you got kind of got a sweet deal going on with the school right now, but yeah, yeah. I mean, so, it sounds like you want to do some private stuff. You got some plans. Yeah, so um, just uh, I've always kind of been uh, wherever it takes me. Yeah, kind of, I've kind of taken that attitude as as far as the, my career goes. Um, my my ultimate goal will be to fly for like uh, like Delta or. or something like that um eventually um but as to as to how i get to that point um i don't have uh any concrete plans for that um yeah. if, if the right job opportunity comes along um then i'll go wherever the right job opportunity is so <laughs> what does your wife think because that like i know with train conductors you're mm-hmm. gone for you're yeah. gone for a while like, yeah so um so it's a discussion that we've had um a, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um and it's 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 difficult. It's I mean just like you said it's um you go fly for an airline and it's typically you spend, you know, 4 or 5 days on the job and and 3 or 4 days off, but those 4 or 5 days are on the job, especially when you're starting out cuz you it's it can be hard to get the base that you want starting out because it's all seniority based. Uh-huh. Um so, you know, if I get put in like Chicago or something, now I've got to commute from Salt Lake to Chicago, fly my rotation, commute back. They get to spend you know two or three days 
with my wife, and then I got to go back and fly rotation. And Commuting's easier though, because you got it, planes. It is easier, slow. yeah. So, so there are people who you know live here and commute somewhere else, or you know, vice versa. Um, but it's it's just more time that you're away yeah. from everybody. So, <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah. It'd be uh, she's um, she's she's okay with it, but she's not. Happy. I wouldn't say she's overjoyed about it. <laughs> yeah, totally get it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, they get, like, full benefits package, the whole... They do, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, think that kinda, I think that kind of um, makes her a little more okay with it than she would have been um, because um, uh, spouses and dependents get, uh, get flight benefits just like the actual employee does, so... Okay. So. Well, uh, we've been over an hour now. What... Uh, what do you think? I mean, this is the new year. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Um, Happy New Year. What do you think, what do you think this year is going to bring? Um, good tidings. <laughs> good tidings? Is that a hopeful I, perspective? It's, I would say it's a hopeful perspective, but at the same time, um, you've got uh, just recently um, SkyWest Airlines, which is one of the, the biggest um, regional airlines in the U.S. Um, they do like um, if you've ever flown on on something that's been branded as like Delta Connection or uh, or United Express or something like that. Um, that's probably operated by SkyWest. Okay. Um, and they um, they just announced plans to bring back people who were in training and got sent home to bring them back to complete the training and, and get stationed and do the thing. So things are, things are looking up, I would say. Um, I'm, I'm hoping ultimately to, um, to go somewhere and, and fly, uh, by, by the end of 2021, hopefully that's my hopeful perspective again on it. But, um, but I do think the industry in general will, um, return to some semblance of normal and some semblance of prosperity, Mm -hmm. at least by the end of this year. Um, and flight training, I can't speak too much to that, but I, I think it'll just keep going on how it's been going. We've been lucky enough to not really see a significant dip in the amount of students, uh, that we've been getting on the flight training, um, side of things. Um, and to anybody who's, uh, who listens to this, who wants to do flight training with the hopes of, uh, flying as a profession, um, but is apprehensive because of how the past year has gone. I, I would say this is the right time to be getting into it because you're going to, by the time you get through your ratings and everything and you have the hours you need to have to go fly as a profession, we'll be um, back for I, sure. I, th- I think the yeah. industry will have recovered by then. And you'll get in, you'll kind of get in on the ground floor as far as that's concerned. So you'll have, you'll have built up seniority for 10 years from now when the next crisis happens. Yeah. So. <laughs> no, there I'm even in the '90s. I mean, there was a not a recession, but there's always boom and bust. Yeah, yeah, and and the aviation industry definitely feels those booms and busts of the the U.S. economy as a whole because air travel is all based on people one being able to afford traveling anywhere, and mm-hmm. and two it being safe to travel somewhere to do something. So, what what year did you graduate? Uh, from college or high school? High school. <laughs> uh, 2016. Did they ever tell you anything about, um, like, the boom and bust in high school? They, um, as far as in general, or what do you mean? Yeah, just, like, did they ever get you ready yeah, for a so coronavirus moment? 
I don't I don't think four years ago you could have gotten anybody ready for yeah. what we're experiencing right now. But um, but I mean we had to take economics in high school, um, and so we we learned about it from that side of things. Um, uh, just you know how the the economy has upturns and downturns, and um, that it's you know it's not something that you can just wish away. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean I I would have graduated in '04. And, um, I mean, they didn't really tell us anything. So, right, yeah. you know, I got into construction. Everything was great. It's all very the generalized. They never, they would yeah. never tell us, nor would, I, nor would I necessarily want them to tell us that we're, you know, you know, going to go through something where we might lose our job or something like that. But they, but it was all very generalized as to like, oh yeah, there's times when more people are employed and less people are employed, but it's, it's never, they never tell us like, Oh man, there's going to be this time where you have to maybe wait for the career that you want, or have to switch careers, or be on. I think they for a definitely need off. to tell kids about that. <laughs> like you might be switching yeah. careers yeah. often. Have them, you know, figure out how to put a good savings plan together, or you know. Yeah, I don't no, even know. I mean, that would be the whole deal. Yeah. That would be for sure. Yeah, um, there is. Um, there is on that note though, um, if at, at uh, UVU doing the aviation degree, there is a specific class we had to take called personal finance for aviation professionals. Okay. Um, and I, going through it, I was like, this is just personal finance. Why do we, why do we specifically have to take this class as part of our aviation core curriculum? But, um, but after I, after I graduated and everything and, and going through what we're going through now, I'm like, okay, this is actually pretty useful because it's just an industry where you've got to have strong personal finance skills because just because of the way that the job works yeah even in good times even when you're employed um you know it's it's worth um it's worth being able to to budget correctly and all that because you're going to be away from home a lot of the time and um you get paid um a lot of times per diem for the time that you're away and um just learning how to handle stuff like that so a couple more questions here with the uh now, Utah is making it mandatory that, or not mandatory, but if you don't take a, the vaccine, mm. um, your employer has the right to fire you. What do you think about that? So, <laughs> without getting um, without getting too political into <laughs> the response to pandemic and, um, and vaccinations and everything, um, it's... I would hope there's some exceptions to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, just like how there's always been as far as, uh, as far as conscientious, yeah, cons- conscientious objectors and, um, and re- religious exemptions and stuff like that. Um, but you know, I, when a vaccine becomes available to me and I'm probably, I'm going to be pretty low on a totem pole because I'm a 22 year old healthy person, but, yeah. um, but when a vaccine comes to me, I you know I fully plan on taking it. I would hope that anybody that I'm flying with, unless they have a medical reason not to, um, would would have it. Um, as far as the as far as there's kind of a debate in the airlines right now too with that as to whether airlines are going to require employees, um, particularly pilots, to be vaccinated before they um, allow them to fly their rotations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it might go that way. And I I don't necessarily I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think without getting too political, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that from, from my perspective, but I think all corporations are 
probably going to go with the mandatory. I would think so too. Yeah. I mean, just for, uh, they're going to get insurance breaks. I do. And... Yeah. That's well that. And, um, just with how hard the aviation industry has been hit, it's one of those things where it's like, just do this so we can get back to normal. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, uh, the FAA has, um, has, uh, issued though that if, if you take the vaccine um 48 hour waiting period to uh i can't remember if that's to go fly in general or to uh or just to fly at an airline but but either way 48 hour waiting period after taking a vaccine um i think that's just for um some of the minor side effects that have been reported no. like uh like headaches and fever and stuff like that um but they're always they're always pretty cautious about that those type of types of things and if uh if some sort of outrageous tyrannical control happens in regards to the vaccine, then then I'll speak out about it. But I I don't think anything right now has been too tyrannical. <laughs> yeah. Well, I my wife like we manage a storage park. My wife and I managed a uh, apartment complex for senior citizens, mm. and they all got their polio vaccinations. And then thirty forty years later they all got shingles from the polio vaccination. Interesting. So that's the thing that makes me question, you know, do I want something that they've been working on for a couple months well, injected into my body? Well, I do know that um, a, a, a common, you know, point of skepticism is, oh, they've made this vaccine so quickly that, um, you know, how did it know it's reliable? Um, but they, the reason they're able to make this vaccine so quickly isn't necessarily because they... They uh, they rushed any component of it to the point of where it's not safe. It's because of the work that had already been done with other types of um, uh, COVID vaccines and um, the process that they're doing the vaccine from as well. It's an M mRNA vaccine, um, mm -hmm. meaning instead of taking the... It's um, not a dead yeah, part of the virus. Exactly, yeah. They're, they're just replicating the spike proteins yeah. um, and getting your body to fight against it. Um, so... So I, I, I trust that it's it's safe and everything. Um, I don't think there there might be super long term side effects like that. Um, but I don't. Oh, I, I guess we'll just have to see. <laughs> I, like I don't want to take the vaccine, but I guarantee I'm going to be forced into it. Yeah. So, um, what do you think about by the end this time next year? Mm -hmm. You know, the first of 2022. Do you think we're back to normal? I think we're back to some semblance of normal. You think um, the mask thing's going to be here forever? Uh, that's that's hard to tell, especially with masks, because um, you have you know a lot of people who don't necessarily follow the guidance on that, anyways. Oh yeah, go down <laughs> to pace, and you're talking about Spanish fork right, right. right there. Um, so it's I mean, I would like to say that we're that we don't necessarily have to wear masks anymore by 2021. Um, I think that I think that'll probably be the case. I think there'll be enough people vaccinated by that point to um, achieve something close to herd immunity, um, and then from there, you, you might have little flare-ups here and there. But I, I, I think we'll be um, back to some semblance of normal human activity to where we're comfortable being close in six feet from each other and not having to wear masks anymore. Here but. in Utah, it's not even that bad. I mean, you got like the <laughs> corporate mcdonald's and del taco and yeah. stuff that won't let you dine in but mm -hmm. for the most part it's pretty normal um yeah i think honestly i think utah struck a pretty good balance between taking the virus seriously um but not 
imposing mandates that don't make any sense necessarily. <laughs> um, I know there's a, there's a statewide mass mandate now, which um, which I actually agree with. Um, but there's it's beyond that. There's nothing that's made me say, "Why are we doing this?" Yeah, you know what I mean. So, um, so as far as for 2022. We'll see. Your your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> yeah, I, I think my biggest problem is I think all of all of twenty twenty one is going to catch up to us, mm-hmm. and that's when the recession end of it's going to start hitting. Yeah, and that's, that's going to be the scary part. Yeah, it's that's something that's worried me too because if you look at the if you look at the stock market and some of those macroeconomic numbers, they they look great, but then you look at like the the unemployment rate and and mm-hmm. uh, jobless claims and stuff like that and it, it all looks terrible so the question is how much is that going to affect some of the macro stuff to where you know if the if the dow jones goes down again to like how it did in march and april or you know where um where you've got banks that uh that can't lend anymore however that happens i, I mean i'm not an economics yeah, major by any sure. means but but that that's something that that is something that has uh worried me a little bit but well and that unemployment rate's always skewed because i mean that doesn't account for people who just turned 18 and entered the workforce that doesn't account for illegal immigrants that doesn't account for you know partial employment so mm-hmm. i mean it will be interesting to see but yeah um do you have any social media or anything you want to shout out um no, no, no brand social media or anything, but, uh, if you guys, um, if, if you're listening to this and you're like, man, I've, I've always wanted to fly an airplane or, you know, do flight training and get, even if it's just your, your private pilot's license or something, um, then, then I would maybe check out, uh, Phoenix Flight Academy. Um, they have an Instagram page, they have a Facebook page as well. Um, and we do, um, private pilot flight training, um, instrument ratings, commercial uh, pilot training if you decide you want to fly for a profession but um but we handle especially down at that flight school we handle a lot of students who are just like i just want to you know take my wife and kids around and fly yeah. them around and just you know do this for fun and we handle a lot of students like that and we can get you um we can we can get you done pretty quickly and um it's it's cheaper than you think it is too what it's, is ballpark <laughs> for that um it just depends on your your skill level and how much of a commitment you're willing to put into it. But I would say, if I had to give you a number anywhere between nine to twelve thousand total for for everything from just started flying to your your license and you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's about the number I would say around ten thousand. Yeah. Okay. And can you stretch that out over some years, or if you stretch it out over over some years, it's going to get a little bit more expensive because it's probably going to take you a little bit more time. Um, flying's flying's one of those skills that, um, especially when you're first starting out, just repetition, just yeah. over and over again. But um, do you have to hold uh, specific insurance? Like, can you just get your Geico insurance to add that? Or um, so, good question. Um, not not sure exactly how it works with uh with if you if you're going to go own your own airplane mm-hmm. um there's insurance that's associated with that um but if you if you rent from Phoenix if you're doing your flight training with Phoenix there's nothing special insurance wise that you have to get on uh on your end um the the flight school is insured and a lot of the instructors are insured as well um, okay. when you're doing your flight training and then when you go and rent um they don't require insurance, um, 
but it, it might not be a bad idea to get some kind of renter's insurance for something like that. Um, I'm, I'm just not sure exactly how, how it works. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, no it problem. Thanks fun. for having me. And thank you guys for listening. We'll be back with another episode.